siblings and coworkers, parents and supervisors. We all have people in our lives with whom it can be hard to get along, and even a good relationship has its rough spots. Join us as we take a kingdom approach to relationships, Heart Smart, a practical guide to relating like Jesus. How you guys doing tonight? It was afternoon. You feeling all right? Luckies. Gall. Because I feel like I got the, the, the crud the last couple days. Uh, so I'm dealing with the crud. So after service, actually, those of you who move forward on Mary's request might want to just back off a little bit. And if we greet after service, it's going to be with a fist bump. And if I start just kind of hacking and coughing up stuff, just mingle amongst yourself for a few minutes, and I'll get over it. All right, so just a little forewarning there. Um, okay, so we are in a series on Heart Smart. And I want to title this message tonight, uh, where we're talking about emotional intelligence and relationships of all kinds and things like that. But we're laying some foundational pieces here. Um, and so this is going to be titled Brain Rain, because we're talking about how to rain over your brain, how to, have, how, to, how, to, how to control what goes on in your brain. Oh, there's three verses I want to read. First is 1 Corinthians 16, uh, where Paul simply says, do everything in love. That sums up everything right there. Do everything in love. And then we find in Philippians 4, he says this. This is the message. Uh, summing it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do best by f- filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious. The best, not the worst. The beautiful, not the ugly. Things to praise, not things to curse. Put into practice what you've learned from me, what you've heard and saw and realized. Do that, and God, who makes everything work together, will work in you, will work you into his most excellent harmonies. Guys, it's kind of coordinate everything, but we position ourselves to be worked into those excellent harmonies when we are having our minds filled with what is true and noble and good and beautiful and all of that. And then finally, here's a passage that is just so important. Second Corinthians. <clears throat> 10, he says, we demolish arguments <clears throat> and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Everything that's contrary to what we know is true about God in Jesus Christ. We come against it and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Pray with me here. Lord, I am so thankful that uh, your word says, and I've seen it numerous times, that when we are weak, you are strong. And I'm leaning on that right now. Uh, still, I pray for strength. Even more so, I pray, God, that, that everybody who hears this message this weekend in the auditorium and through podcasts, Lord, that it would have an authority that comes from you and not from me or any other person. And, Lord, that you'd be infusing it with the power to build your kingdom, to tear down strongholds, to come against everything, every thought, imagination, attitude, and feeling that's contrary to the truth and contrary to your character and contrary to your designs. And that we, Lord, could be people who get set free from that that our minds would be in conformity with yours, that your love could flow into us and flow through us. Let it happen, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Quick review. We saw last week that uh, uh, love in the Bible is defined, the kind of love that kingdom people are supposed to have anyways, is defined by pointing us to the cross. Here's how we know what love is. First John 3.16 says, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and so also we should lay down our life for one another. And so the kind of love that God is eternally and the kind of love that we're to manifest uh, is the kind of love that is other-oriented. It's self-sacrificial. It reflects the humble, other-oriented, self-sacrificial character of God. And Paul says to do everything 
in love. Everything is to, character, is to manifest that kind of love. Everything we do, every thought we think, everything we say, every action we, we, we take, our goal should be to have all of it reflect uh, the character of God, which is revealed on the cross. That humility, that other-orientedness. Do everything in love. But we also saw last week that we can't just decide to do that. On your mark, set, go, bam, that's it. Which we could, but we can't. It's not that we don't will it, but we're not capable of it. Not in our fallen state. We're not capable of, of, of uh, cranking out that kind of love. And the most fundamental reason is because we are created with this God-shaped vacuum in, our, in the innermost part of our being. And it's a hunger for what I call life, the fullness of life. It's a hunger to be loved and to feel like you have a purpose and significance and you're worthwhile. And, and um, that you're secure in that. And it's so intense, our need is so desperate that only our Creator can meet that need. But if our Creator is not meeting that need, then we do life on empty. We do life, as we said last week, in the hunger game. We're hungry. And then everything we see becomes a source of food. We try to feed off of everything. We become parasitic. That need won't go away. And so we try to get that need met by what we achieve and who we impress and, and, and how much money we have and uh, possessions we have. And we bring that hunger to our relationships. And so now we enter into relationships not out of a fullness of life that could be other-oriented, but rather we enter into them on some level, and this isn't conscious, of course, but we're trying to get life. We're trying to get worth and significance. And so relationships in the world always have this sort of quid pro quo quality. I do this for you, and you do this for me, and it's not just an overflowing, other-oriented love. Because the truth is, it's impossible to be ascribing worth to another. That's what the, the love of the cross is all about, ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself if necessary. But you can't be ascribing worth to another if you're being motivated by a need for worth and trying to get that worth. And so everything depends on our getting our fullness of life from Christ and then overflowing towards others. That's how that thing's supposed to operate. Um, and so our relationships will only be as healthy and kingdom as our, uh, as our relationship with Christ is healthy and, and manifest the kingdom. It's crucial if you want to have good, healthy kingdom relationships with your spouse, with your kids, with your neighbors, with your parents, with your co-workers, in, and with your enemies. If you're going to have kingdom relationships, we've, you've got to spend time drinking deeply from the well, the bottomless well of God's life, God's love. Uh, that's revealed on the cross. Okay, but that doesn't solve everything. There's another obstacle that we face, and this is pretty big. Um, here's the thing. I can set this up by just a little bit of teaching. We are body, soul, and spirit. According to Scripture, there's three dimensions to us. Uh, and it's not three separate things. It's three dimensions of one thing. Uh, but they are distinct. And so the spirit is our innermost being. That's where the hunger is located. And that hunger drives almost all human behavior. That's our innermost essence. All right. Then our soul, uh, this, this is the Greek term suke. We get the word psyche from it. And it refers to our thoughts and feelings, our personality. It's, it's um, our experienced identity. It's, it's what we're aware of. All right. So that's how we experience ourselves. We're deeper than that because we have this essence down here. But, but that's what we identify as ourself. And then, of course, we have our bodies. And this is our place in the world. This is the means by which we, we interact with, with others in some physical environment. And what we do with our body always expresses what's going on in our spirit and our mind. Now, in God's design, and this illustrates kind of how it works, 
They're not that separate, but this is just an illustration. The way it's supposed to work is that God pours out his fullness of life and love into our spirit, which goes to our soul, which goes through our bodies, and then goes out there and apparently electrifies people. I don't know. They're doing something there. Either that, they got some kind of spiked hair going on. I don't know. But those, those people, there, they're just being so blessed, they're dancing, I guess. And that's how it's supposed to work. You can think of it like, like three cylinders. And, and, and if, they're, if they're open, there's a flow that goes there. And so when we are in congruity, body, soul, and spirit, when we have alignment with God and, and His purposes and, and with truth, then that life can flow into us and flow through us. And now we can do everything in love. Now we're not operating out of hunger. We're operating out of fullness. But if a person's spirit isn't yielded to God, and this is, this is where the ultimate decision is made, either you're going to live a self-centered life, or be a self-centered person, or you'll be an other-oriented person, a God-centered person. And, and that's just a matter, at the core of our being, submitting. But if a person is not submitted, well, the fullness of life gets blocked. It's a, it's a cork in the funnel, if you will. Uh, the, the life of God can't flow. But it can happen that you are submitted to God in the core of your being. Your ultimate heart's desire is, is to, to be a person who's centered on, on, on God, and yet the life of God is still blocked because you've got a messed up brain. And in this fallen world, we all have, to some degree, a messed up brain. Uh, there's soul damage to the degree that we believe lies about God, lies about ourselves, lies about others. To the degree that our thoughts, our attitudes, uh, and disposition aren't in alignment with God and with what is true, with how we're designed. It's a cork. It's a cork in the funnel. Uh, the, the life can't get through. And so you, at the core of your being, you're open to God and hungry for God. But you don't experience that because it's, it's getting blocked. It's getting blocked. Um, and this is why brain discipleship is so very, very important. So here's the thing. The minute we surrender to Christ and, and, and trust Him and commit to living trustworthy in relationship with Him, the moment that happens, our spirit is regenerate. The core of your being is changed. And so all the things the Bible says is true about us are true about us at that level. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus, blessed with every spiritual blessing, seated with Him in heavenly places, holy and blameless, and all the rest. Uh, you, you've got Ava's DNA in you now. Right? Your essence has changed. But that doesn't automatically happen for our mind, as we all know. It would be nice if it did, but God empowers us to take authority over that. And we can't do it without the help of the Spirit, but the Spirit's not going to do it for us. And so Paul tells us to take every thought captive. That's on us. Take every thought captive. Be aware of what you're thinking. And he tells us how we're to think. Whatever things are noble, whatever things are true, you know, think on those things, focus on those things, fill your mind with those things. We're empowered to do that. We have authority over our think. We are called to and are responsible to reign over our brain. As Christ reigns over us, we reign over our brain. Uh, most, people, most people don't do this, they're not aware of this. They just do the autopilot that they inherited from this fallen world. Things that were was said to them, things they concluded, experience they had, it just goes on autopilot and they're really destined by that stuff. Our brains go on autopilot until we change them, but we have the authority to change them. And so Paul says, fill your mind with what is true. That means you're going to be pushing out everything that's not true. Fill your mind with what is noble. That means you're going to be pushing out all that is degrading. Fill your mind. Choose to fill your mind with all that's beautiful. That means you're going to be pushing out everything that's ugly. Choose to fill your mind with what's authentic. That means you're going to be pushing out everything that's dishonest. Choose your mind, choose to fill your mind with all that's praiseworthy. That means you're going to be pushing out all that's not praiseworthy. He says, fill your mind with what is gracious. That means you'll be pushing out all judgments on people. 
And see, when we do that, to the degree that we do that, now the soul is an open uh, cylinder through which the life of God can begin to flow. And now the cycle gets going. A whole lot hangs on this. In fact, this is really, I think, the linchpin of everything. If, if the, the mind is not brought under the authority of Christ, well, everything else that is brought under the authority is just going to be uh, covering up wounds, and, and it's not going to come from the inside out. And so th- this is really the first and most foundational act of discipleship. Take authority over the three and a half pounds of noodles between your ears. Oh, and when I was thinking about this message, I thought to myself, who is the person that I know that I think has the most knowledge about how the brain works? <coughs> Excuse me. That was pleasant, wasn't it? Delightful. Uh, who, who is it that knows the most about the brain and, and emotional intelligence and relationships uh, that I know? And uh, Sue Crowdkramer came immediately to mind. I, I've known this woman for oh, oh, 15 years or something. We go back a ways. We're both kind of, well, you're getting older. I'm, I'm getting younger all the time. But, but uh, it, Sue is uh, just uh, a gem of a person. She's, she's wild and witty and wonderful and super smart and super godly and super successful, but also super humble. And, and, and she does this kind of teaching for a living. It goes to companies and consults with uh, emotional intelligence sort of stuff. So would you give a warm Woodland Hills welcome to Sue Crowdkramer? Thank you. Thanks. It's great to be here this morning. And I'm going to start with a question. I'm going to get you involved right away. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if it's true of you. How many of you would say that you start most average days in your life with good intent? You have good positive intent when you start your day. Excellent. Good. Yeah, of course we do. We start our days and we're thinking, I am going to demonstrate Christ-like love today. I'm going to stay connected to God. I'm going to remain positive today. You may even be thinking on my good intentions is getting my to-do list done. If you have really good intentions today, you might be thinking, I'm even going to exercise and eat right. So I have a second question for you. How many of you would also say it's true that at the end of the day, you reflect back on the good intentions you started your day with, you look at what happened in the day, and you find that there's a bit of a gap between the two. Anybody? Yeah, certainly. When you are at your best self, your Christ-centered, connected to God self, you are brilliant. I'm serious. You are literally brilliant. God has designed each one of us to be perfectly and uniquely fit in to the body of Christ. And we all came into this world designed to be brilliant at something. And when we stay connected to that Christ-centeredness that we know about, we are, in fact, brilliant. We're loving, we're kind, we're compassionate, we're thoughtful, we're amazing people. So the question I'm here to talk about today is what happens What happens when us good, loving, kind, thoughtful, generous people start our day with great intentions and boom, we assess the day at the end and find out we've got a gap? Well, I'm going to be talking about this through the lens of how God designed our brains to work. I've had the privilege over the past 10 plus years to study how God designed and wired our brains as it pertains to behavior. So the big question I've been trying to answer all these years is, why do people behave the way they do? You may have had that question as well. I've also taken that information about how our brain is wired, and I've taken it and looked at it through the lens of the Bible. What does God tell us about how we're supposed to use this brain? 
What does God tell us about how we're supposed to behave? Interestingly, when I put that whole package together of how God designed our brains and what he tells us in the Bible, it fits together perfectly, as you might imagine. So that's what we're going to be doing today. I'm going to start by giving just a very short brain lesson. For a lot of you, this won't be entirely new because Greg does tend to talk about this stuff fairly often. So there are two parts of your brain I'd like to talk about this morning. I'll just tell you there is a third part to your brain. We're not going to talk about that because you can't do much about it. It's your brain stem. It sits right at the base of your skull, and it takes care of all of your automatic functions. And your brain stem is very important to your life. So, for instance, when you go to bed at night, you don't have to stop and think, oh, my gosh, how am I going to breathe all night? Right? Your brain stem takes care of all that kind of stuff for you. But we can't do a lot about that. So we're going to focus on the two parts of your brain you can do something about. First part I'd like to address is that complex thinking part of your brain. It's the top part of your brain. And you may know it as your prefrontal cortex lobe. That's one part of your thinking brain. This is where you do all of your executive functions. So things like brainstorming, problem solving, analyzing. Um, This is where you have options, which is why we call it your complex brain. This is really, really important when we're talking about relationships. Because in relationships, as I'm sure you've experienced, we have some people we get along very well with, then we have some not so much. We also find people in our lives that we maybe find challenging. Some people that we like, but we still find challenging. The prefrontal cortex lobe is designed to find options. When you're at your best self, when you're just really rock-solid centered in who you are, this part of your brain can find options for dealing with virtually any kind of personality or person. So that's a brilliant thing, and this is a great part of your brain. Now, we want to figure out how that works in relationship to your emotional brain. So the limbic brain is the emotional brain, and we're not going to talk about all of it, even though it's all super cool and does lots of good things for you. There's one part of it I want to focus on, and that is your amygdala. How many people have heard of the amygdala? Yes, you cannot say that's true in very many churches, by the way. (laughs) All right. The amygdala is critical to know about and understand. It is your fight or flight system. The entire intent or the main intent of your amygdala is to keep you safe. So you can think of your amygdala like a little radar screen that goes off 24-7, never shuts down, even when you're sleeping, and its primary job is to detect a sense of threat. If it detects a sense of threat, its job is to keep you physically safe. So let me give you an example. Let's say that uh, you're out hiking in a national park somewhere, and you're walking along a big cliff. And as you're walking along, you start hearing a little rustling noise above your head, and somebody yells, rocks! You look up, and sure enough, some rocks are coming loose at the top of this uh, cliff. In that moment in time, what do you think you'd do? Run, jump, do something, right? You'd be out of there. That's your amygdala keeping you safe. In 0.85 milliseconds, your amygdala is going to send a message to the brainstem and say, send some chemicals. It's going to flood your body with chemicals and put you in a fight or flight state. 
Because there's a rock falling on your head, it's going to put you into a flight state because you're going to want to get out of the way. Now, this is a fantastic thing when you have a rock falling on your head, right? The other thing is, it's 100 times faster than your thinking brain is because it's got to be on top of everything to keep you physically safe. So how the amygdala works as a whole, little radar screen, detecting sense of threat, rocks, that's a threat, pumps chemicals into your system. Those chemicals give you superhuman strength for a short period of time. That's what it's designed to do, so that you can either fight like a warrior or run like the wind. Now, has it, I'm sure all of you have seen some kind of TV program where somebody lifted up a car or moved a tree off a loved one or something. You might be thinking, yeah, really, seriously, that can't happen. It actually can God designed us so when these chemicals pump into our system, we literally do have superhuman strength where we could lift a car or jump out of the way of a rock. This is um, another piece that goes into play, though, is it does affect your thinking brain. Because if you stop and think about it, you look up, rocks are about to fall on your head. Do you need any complex thought at this particular moment in time? Yeah, you really don't. In fact, it would be detrimental to you if you did have complex thought. Because remember, this part of your brain wants to create options. So your very smart uh, neocortex is going to be going, well, let's stop and think about this for a minute. Think the rock's really going to hit me? It could bounce. So what happens, <clears throat> your, very <clears throat> excuse me, your very smart amygdala dumps these chemicals into your system it sends some cortisol, which is one of the chemicals it's dropping in your system, up to this prefrontal cortex lobe and says, prefrontal cortex lobe, love you, mean it, we need you a lot, but right this second, we do not need you in play. The cortisol literally turns off your ability to have complex thought in this moment in time. We call this an amygdala or an emotional hijack. What's going on is the emotional part of your brain is literally hijacking your thinking brain and your physical body so that you can either fight like a warrior, pick up a car, or run like the wind, get away from a rock. So this, would you agree, is a brilliant system? Isn't that great? Like, thank you, God. We would probably all be dead by now if we didn't have our amygdala. And then we'd never get to use our very smart prefrontal cortex lobe again. Well, this is all fine, well, and good until we find out that the amygdala isn't all that discerning. It doesn't necessarily discern the difference between physical danger and social-emotional danger. So what that means, social-emotional danger looks more like somebody's criticizing you. Somebody's doing something that's very unfair. Somebody's putting you down or embarrassing you or questioning your decisions. All of those things that happen to us in day-to-day -day life can cause us to start flooding chemicals into our system and put us into a fight-or-flight mode. So, I want to see if any of these things have ever happened to you. I, I, they have happened to me, I'll admit it, but let's see if they've happened to you. Have you ever been in a situation where you mentally froze, could not think of the right thing to say, and then 20 minutes later, all the right answers came flying back to you? Yeah? Maybe you had to meet with somebody who find a little bit challenging, somebody who's conflict in life, and you're just stealing yourself and saying, I am not going to get defensive. I'm not going to get defensive. 
You walk in, 10 minutes into the conversation, boom. Yeah, we've all done that. Guess what? That's your amygdala too. So that same amygdala that helps you jump out of the way of the rock is that same amygdala that when you're face-to-face and in relationship with people might actually send some chemicals into your system and put you back into a fight-or-flight mode. Just so you know, once you dump a bunch of chemicals into your system, they can stay in your system for up to 20 minutes turning off your thinking brain. 20 minutes is a long time to continue talking without thought. Anybody in here who's ever been in an argument knows exactly what I'm talking about. So what happens? Chemicals drop in. It was designed originally to fight like a warrior, pick up a car, or run like the wind, get away from a rock. We have choice in this process in terms of what happens with these chemicals and what we do with our thinking brain to override it. But if we don't, if we let ourselves be triggered by the social-emotional danger of being criticized or whatever, we are going to put the chemicals into our system and our system will respond. Because we're not using it up, it's going to do something else. And if you think about it, you probably already know what happens. And you can start looking for this after today. When somebody starts to be triggered, first of all, you're probably going to notice that their color changes. They get flush. Um, you're also going to notice that if you were to, if they go into flight mode, we naturally puff our body up. We may not even know we're doing it. We'll usually pull back our shoulders. We almost always will clench our fists. Our voice will get more aggressive and we'll start raising it. The other thing that's going on in your brain, we're shutting off all the complex thought. The only thought your brain has left right now is I want to survive. I want to be safe. And what that means is I'm going to narrow all the options I had in my brain down to one which is focusing in on my danger, and I am thinking, I am going to take you down. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You've done it. Or you've been on the receiving end of it. The other thing you could do is you might potentially go into flight mode. Flight mode, if you watch somebody's physical body when they go into flight mode, you're going to start shrinking down, usually pull your shoulders down in, hands will often come down or in pockets. You'll notice the eyes get very diverted. They're going to go to usually the floor, the door, or a clock, although those represent getting away. Often people become yes people in that moment in time. They start saying yes to anything because they just want to get out of the situation. And realistically, we won't speak truth. At that moment in time, we simply won't. Neither of these options are kingdom. This is not kingdom Christ-like behavior. This is not us being our best selves. This is us not being brilliant. This is our gap. So um, I'm going to show you a little video. Because how the amygdala works, we don't always flood 100% all at one time. Sometimes we just start dripping chemicals in as we start getting a little annoyed or a little bit frustrated. But typically, if we don't in that moment in time take our thoughts captive we are going to find that the chemicals start dro- continue dropping until we're crazy. No thinking going on. So if we could show the video, we'll show people what happens in an amygdala hijack. Excuse me. I know you didn't think anyone would catch you, but you just slammed your door into my car. The least you can do is say you're sorry, lady. I don't have to take that tone. It's not like I'm hurting your resale value. 
I'm sorry. See? Like that. walk away from a situation and say, I don't know what happened. I just got crazy. I don't know what happened. That's your amygdala. Now, this is a pretty extreme example, and it's in a car. But I'm guessing some of you have experienced things like this in your life. It started out a small comment, and then it turned into an argument, and then it turned into complete nuttiness, and four years later, you're no longer talking to this person. That's nuttiness, and sometimes we look back and go, I don't even know how it happened. So, Clearly, we need to look at the rest of the story here because we've got this amazing amygdala God gave us to keep us safe, but he also gave us a very smart thinking brain that we need to use effectively to figure out how to override that amygdala when we are not in physical danger. You're not going to be able to override it if you're in physical danger. You can override it if you are in social-emotional danger. So let me give you an example. I've actually had people say to me, well, am I not then justified in being a maniac? God made me this way. <laughs> no, no, you're absolutely not. Let's say you have something bad happen to you in a day. Maybe I'm going to use the example of a Fred. So Fred and you have a conversation, and it doesn't go well, and Fred gets kind of demeaning and maybe, maybe making some negative comments, and it's really upsetting you, and you get all frustrated and worked up, and it's over now, and you're done. Now, I'm sure no one here would ever do this, but I have seen people who then immediately march down the hall and find the first person they can talk to, and they retell the story in great detail. 
all right? Getting all wound up again, getting all flushed, hearts racing again. Then they walk away and they march down and they call somebody. And then they go find somebody else. And they are going on and on, spending their day talking about this horrible thing that Fred did. Well, guess what? Your amygdala doesn't think. It doesn't do rational thought. However, it does learn. Which means every time you retell this story, your amygdala thinks it's happening to you again. Every time it thinks it's happening to you again, it's building a neural net structure in your brain saying, Fred does this all the time. Right? You had something happen once, and you retold the story ten times, so your amygdala is now constantly on high alert for Fred, because Fred does this to you all the time. That is a choice you are making. There are different, even if Fred is a jerk, there are choices you have. In this case, when you go and talk about it, you're giving Fred the power of stealing your joy in life. You're giving Fred the power to take away your Christ-like centeredness when it comes to doing relationships. If you think about it, depending on how you behaved, you have two choices here. One, you could walk away from Fred, find a quiet place to sit down, connect to God, and say, wow, God, Fred is having a bad day. Could you just please send some angels to help him because he's in a super bad space today? And then could you just help me wash off all the negative things he said that aren't true about me? Because I know that when I'm connected to you, I'm brilliant. And I don't need to accept this. All right, we can then continue on on our day in one fashion that was probably the most healthy way we could do it. Our second option, of course, is to let Fred steal our joy, run around, tell everybody in the world about what's going on, and not only have we ruined our day, probably ruined our night's sleep, ruined our family's evening, because we talked about it all evening, we're ruining Fred's reputation, and potentially unjustifiably. We've also wound up all these other people throughout the day that didn't necessarily need to have their amygdalas tweaked either. So when you think about it, and I know everybody here has seen Romans 12, um, why does God tell us in Romans 12, 1, it's your everyday life. This is from the message. Take your everyday life and offer it up to God. That means even people you don't like, even when Fred attacks you, we're supposed to be turning this over to God. And then in Romans 12, 2, very specifically, God tells us that he can help us change our thinking. And why this is so important is how we're thinking has everything to do with how much danger our amygdala thinks is going on in the world. We are not supposed to just do what everybody else in the world does, which is complain about Fred repeatedly. These are choices that we have based on what we focus on and what we think on. So, kind of interesting, huh? Crazy to know that that amygdala is going on in our brain doing that. I want to give you three things that you can do about your amygdala, knowing now what it does and how it works for you. All of these are rooted in what we're told in the Bible. So the first thing is to really be thinking about where do you put your attention and your sense of self-worth? There's many things in the Bible that tells us what we should be thinking about. So the question I want you to consider is where do you place your time, attention, and focus? Based on where you put your time, attention, and focus 
is how you build neural net patterns in your brain. It also informs your amygdala about what is dangerous and what is not dangerous. So my question to you would be, when you stop and think about what happened to the gap between your good intentions and what happened, where was your sense of center? Were you more concerned with being criticized or maybe winning an argument or being right than you were about demonstrating Christ-like love, about staying with connected with Jesus moment by moment throughout the day? Wherever you put your time, attention, and focus is going to inform your brain about what you should respond to. So number one, think about what you're thinking about. Number two, now that we understand this uh, amygdala dumps chemicals into our system, this is a physiological process. So once you've dumped chemicals in, this is no more that you can just do whatever you want. You've got chemicals running around in there that want to do something. There is something you can do to diffuse those chemicals and get yourself back to center again. So I will tell you there's three things. I'll tell you what the three things are. You need to be able to do these in like, seriously, five seconds. And you need to practice it in advance or it doesn't work for you. I have been teaching this for 10 years. I've taught thousands of people to do this. And it's one of the biggest things people say that is a game changer. So the second you start feeling you have chemicals in your body, you're going to know it. Because your heart's going to start pounding like this. Your temperature is going to change. You're probably going to get flush. You're probably going to get sweaty palms. All of that is the chemicals in your body putting you into a fight or flight state. The three things you can do to override that. Number one, you have to stop the way it's happening. So you want to literally say your name and the word stop. Now, if you're in front of people, you want to say this in your head, not out loud. <laughs> so I would say, Sue, stop. Next thing you want to do, take a deep breath. It is terribly important to stop and take that deep breath because you're changing the chemical flow within your system when you do it. And the third thing, you need to get anchored back in what is most important in your life. So us that know Jesus, we can find a place in our life where we're rock solid and I know that my faith is more important than what is happening to me right this second. So what it looks like if you put it all together, you start feeling yourself getting a little bit wound up. That means chemicals are flowing, hearts pounding, getting hot. Right in that moment in time, you want to stop and go, Sue, stop. Deep breath. Where's my anchor in life? It sounds simple, but what's interesting is it actually overrides the chemical process that's taken place in your body. So I'm going to challenge you to think about that and see if you can practice that this week. The third thing, and this is maybe my favorite thing of all, <clears throat> living gratitude. Yeah. The Bible's full of gratitude, right? Here's the interesting thing when you put it with your brain. God designed us so that when we're in a state of authentic gratitude or appreciation, different chemicals flood into our system and put us into a state of well-being. Part of what happens when we're in a state of well-being is it opens that prefrontal cortex lobe back up to start being able to find options. Your emotional brain doesn't do fear and gratitude simultaneously. If you're finding yourself starting to be in a state of fear, can you use the smart thinking part of your brain to get back into gratitude? Because it'll release different chemicals that literally overtake the negative chemicals and put you into a state of well-being. 
Is that cool or what? That's why. That's why we need our moment-to-moment, day-to-day relationship with Jesus. This can't be I do it in the morning, I have my quiet time, and I hit the road. We have to stay connected with Jesus moment-by-moment, day-by-day, so that we can constantly access that pure love of Christ within us that gives us the peace that we need to override the amygdala that wants to save us from a rock falling on our head. So I will tell you that for the past five years or so, I have been specifically working on creating a brain wired for joy. I I practice finding what I call I love my life moments. If you pay attention, there are tons of I love my moments every single day. The question is, what are you looking for? I love my life moments or that critical comment that might be coming at you. I can tell you from having done this for years, my amygdala is far less wired for danger than most people's is. I do see danger. It's not that I don't see it but I don't get affected by it nearly as frequently since I started wiring my brain for joy. So I put it out to you today to consider the ways that you could have more joy in your life and less fear. I just love the way that uh, the Bible and science uh, just come together. Uh, you know, the, the, it turns out there's a neurological reason why we're told over and over again to have gratitude and why there's so much emphasis on forgiveness, letting things go, not going to bed, uh, while you're still angry, letting go of anger very, very quickly, uh, giving thanks in all things over and over again. It turns out God kind of knows what he's talking about, doesn't he? <laughs> he should. He's the architect, and he knows how this thing uh, works. I encourage us, uh, the hardest thing is to wake up to it, because we so identify with our thought that uh, we just assume that we're, we're not even noticing that we're interpreting things and we're getting triggered whatever. Wake up to that and realize that you have the power to program this organic computer between your ears. Uh, it is there to serve you, not the other way around. All right, can we stand? And as I do, I like, as you do, I'd like to ask the prayer team to come up here. And if you have any need here uh, uh, that could use prayer, and if you have a need, it probably could, uh, come up here and pray with these folks. Uh, don't carry that burden out uh, on your own. Abba, Father, thank you that you have made us in such an awesome and wonderful way with this incredibly wonderful organic computer. Uh, it's just spectacular. And yet in the fallen world, it can work against us. Uh, if it's not programmed right, it can, it can be hindering us rather than helping us. Uh, Lord, by the, by the power of your spirit, keep us awake. Keep us aware. Keep us focused on the right things, filling our minds with the right things, ruminating about the right things, setting aside all that is ugly and all that is untrue and all that is not consistent with your character, filling our mind with all that is true and all that is beautiful and all that is consistent with your character. As we leave here, committed to be disciples of our minds and service to you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Man, God bless you. Thanks, Sue. That was wonderful.